Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Okay, guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. We're actually doing uh, two shows in a row this week apart from each other. Did to a slow start of 2023, but uh, it's been fun nonetheless. And and here we are with a couple of our favorite guests. Uh, one that we haven't had on in a while, but uh, did one of the best shows that we've ever done on Elvis and the Paranormal. Which, if you guys haven't listened to that, you, you need to. Um, because there are some great revelations involved. But uh, AP Strange is with us. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah absolutely. nice to have you thanks back. For, thanks for coming on. It's always great to have you. And Chris Ernst is also with us. Yeah, thanks also for having me back. And I'm very happy to be here. And, and nobody can see this, but Chris Ernst is in a black and white film somewhere. Uh, I am. My default he, setting is black and white. He's in the Elephant Man at the moment. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what's going on. <laughs> it just lets you, it masks all the messiness, is what it does. Right. Nobody right. cares. So we're going to talk about the occult and cinema tonight with these two gentlemen. But I thought that. Since we're gonna, we'll talk about what everybody's probably talking about. Oh yeah, get you guys' thoughts on these shoot downs. So I'll kind of run over this a little bit. We're recording this on Wednesday the fifteenth. Was it like a week and a half ago? They shot down the Chinese spy balloon. We know what that is. Then like a week later, last Friday, there was some object, a cylindrical object, shot down over Alaska. There was another cylindrical object, and they they said that both of these were the size of a small car that was shot down 
over the Yukon, over Canada. That was on Saturday. And then on Sunday, there was another object shot down over Lake Huron that was an octagon shape. I think that's the one you're thinking of, which is a weird shape. But so we had like three in a row in like three days of these weird things being shot down. And of course, they're describing them as UAP because they don't know what they are. So by the strictest sense of the word, they're either unidentified flying objects or unidentified aerial phenomenon. Plus, uh, more people click that link when it says UFO. Yeah, shut that's down. right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we got some weirdness. I mean, I've kind of got my own thoughts on this, but, which is that I think that because of the balloon, we were we were really heightened. Yeah, that's and the, that a lot of consensus is these things have been going on for a while. We all know this weird stuff is in the sky. What it is, we can debate till the cows come home. But uh, because of that heightened sense of alertness. That's why they were shooting these things out. Now, they haven't said that they've recovered these things, so I don't know whether they think they've shot them down or they popped back into another dimension or back to the portal to Zeta Reticuli. I don't know. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So, it's just kind of a very, very, very weird. And I know that on the Where to the Red Go Slack, I know, AP, you've been talking about it a little bit. Uh, but I'd yeah. like to get you guys' thoughts on on this and what could be going on. And I kind of feel like that this is probably going to be one of those things that in December we'll be like, do you remember that weird shit that was happening in February? And then we'll never talk about it again. But right now, it's like, you know, UF- and UFO Twitter has just blown up with this. But what the people really want to know yeah. is if Elvis was involved. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been there's the 2001 connection because Elvis used to always open his Vegas shows with uh, the, the big Zarathustra theme yes. from uh, 2001 so, with the monolith and the balloons it's all connected <laughs> so so Elvis was coming back to earth and they shot him down is that what's, what's, what's going on very well in, could be he was in the octagon craft so what's you guys thoughts on this Progressing geometric shapes, sphere, cylinder, yes, octagon. What's next? Dodecahedron. It's gonna <laughs> the full Pythagorean one to ten. I I mean I I sort of agree with. Uh, I think it's two things. I think one it's uh, diverting us from other things that are probably. Uh, uh, a lot more dire and uh, perhaps depressing uh, that are out there in terms of the media sort of glomming onto it as a thing. Cause it's, you know, it's easy, it's easy candy, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I think it's, I kind of agree with uh, the, uh, the 14 entity known as super inframan, AKA Saxon, uh, who does have a lot of experience with uh, light aircraft and this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, he, he, his, his take on it, I think if I'm, you know, requoting him uh, correctly is that he thinks that there, you know, these things exist and have been out there all the time. They're over most countries, you know, in terms of like spy stuff. Um, but 
right now there's just be a focus on it for sort of media purposes. Uh, you know, I know that there are all sorts of, you know, different uh, inflatable aircraft that are used for surveillance purposes, but I don't even know if any of these are really able to get, uh, you know, any information. Cause I feel like, you know, at least with my understanding of the type of sort of radar and air defense that we have, um, even though these are slow moving, that's not going to change anything. They're still going to be detected and there's going to be some sort of jamming, uh, you know, frequency that's in any sensitive area. So um, I don't think there's anything UFO like about it. Uh, I think people are probably noticing it more uh, since the, there was the, the Chinese spy balloon and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's spy balloons all over China from us and England and France and whatever, and all sorts of weird spying going on about, you know, from everybody that, that has the capability of doing it. Weather balloons too, you know, <laughs> some of them really are, you know, yeah. yeah as far as the balloons. octagon one goes, from what I understand, if you were to fake a flying saucer with a inflatable craft, the octagon would be the easiest shape to do that with. Yeah. If you were trying to make a flying saucer shape with it. So, um, because that's, it's the easiest way to geometrically spread around like a disc shape. And that's been done before, like with the balloon boy thing. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. back in late. Yeah. Uh, and Richard Branson, when he, he made like a UFO balloon, uh, in 1989, and and flew right. it over over a highway in the UK, you know, <laughs> freaked a bunch of people out. This is like higher altitudes. Yeah, but I mean, it could it could have been um, it could have been a civilian thing that got away. Yeah, you know, it maybe went higher than they anticipated. But but the octagonal shape actually isn't that weird when you think about it that way. If it was designed to look like a flying saucer, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is pretty weird how all over the media it is. Uh, I mean, it, it, that is some, I find that strange also in that, you know, all of these sort of ex government and uh, you know, people, and maybe it's just, these are their jobs being news pundits or weighing in on it. Like, why is everybody talking about spy balloons all of a sudden? Um, which makes me wonder if it's sort of a talking point that has to do with something else that, you know, I'm not sure what is going on. Some sort of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, more jumbo. I really do think it's to distract from the ecological disaster in Ohio that's in happening Palestine, right now. Ohio, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Which pretty bad. One of my friends point, pointed out talking about occult cinema too. Um, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they were covering up where the mothership was landing by evacuating people, saying there was a train crash with dangerous chemicals. Right. Yeah, I remember and that. now <laughs> we're being distracted from uh, an actual train crash with dangerous chemicals by supposed UFOs yeah. in real life. So, yeah, that's a that's good, a that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I was about to bring that up about the East Palestine, Ohio thing. I know that like people were saying that it's a it's a distraction from that, but that story seems to be gaining some some steam too. So. I don't know, honestly. I mean, they're saying that it's being covered up. I mean, if anybody's covered it up, it's probably the company responsible. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of bad actors responsible there, but yeah, yeah, 
There was another weird movie thing with that too, though, because they filmed um, the movie White Noise for Netflix, not far mm-hmm. from there. Oh, really? Which is about mm-hmm. like a similar ecological disaster. <laughs> people being evacuated and some of the extras lived in east palestine see they told you what was gonna happen man right before it happened (laughs) right yeah Yeah. it's all part of the plan the plan (laughs) we're gonna get into some of that later it's It's uh, all hidden in plain sight it's the revelation of the method is 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 what it is so well anything else that we want to say about the ufos i mean it it seems to be even like right now it seems to be kind of dying down so i don't know why i was surprised but i was surprised at how fast the believer community and ufo twitter like jumped onto it yeah they've outdone themselves for sure Uh, (laughs) well it's funny because i started thinking about this stuff symbolically because um you know, as much as I might dunk on synchromysticism sometimes, like I, I have an idiocratic synchromysticism yeah. of my own, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I was writing a blog post about it and then I just kind of lost steam and had stuff to do and uh, have a lot going on otherwise. And I had came back to it the following weekend thinking like, well, this might be old news by now. People have probably moved on from the balloon thing, but nope, <laughs> we got three more balloons. So yeah. I just went ahead and wrote it anyway. I but, just um, I just looked uh, I did look news news search for uh, balloon and it's like you know all all of these tons of thing tons of uh, uh, stuff but it, I think people are starting to uh, glom onto it so now like Laguna Beach is looking to ban sale of all balloons uh, and wow. there's another one of like uh, what is it like I'm in a sexual relationship with a balloon so it's just like balloons <laughs> now yeah. Oh balloons or oh yeah i'm sexually attracted to objects and in a committed relationship with balloons new york post i mean it's a new york post but right <laughs> balloons are the uh the the word du jour quality journalism oh and i was looking into it one thing i found interesting was i was thinking about aside from balloons you had those um the lanterns i think the japanese lanterns or, yeah. the, or the chinese lanterns that that mm-hmm. you know, they fly with a candle in them yeah and those get mistaken for ufos a lot of the time so i was trying to like i was looking up chinese lantern and i got back um the lantern festival which is celebrated 15 days after the chinese new year mm-hmm. which was the day that the chinese spy balloon was shot down on the lantern festival day yeah, I think so. Oh, wow. wow. That is huh. that is pretty wild. A little quinky dink. It's yeah, weird stuff, yeah. Well, what you were saying, Chris, about the about the other the, the technology, spy technology, is when I heard the cylindrical object and that it was like the small the size of a car. I mean, I immediately went to drone. Well, oh my god. There's yeah, it, it why they're all being noticed now i mean maybe it's more people are looking for it that that is something that i don't have an answer for why we're getting a cluster but yeah i mean any of these could easily be drones their the drone technology is and this is again something that you know uh whenever saxon super inframan speaks about it he has a lot more knowledge about this but it's really i mean it's far far advanced from what we understand from what we know uh so there's all sorts of stuff that's being um 
the, the, you know, hy- hybrid at one point, I think, and I don't know if it was him that was talking about it. Somebody else, somebody was talking about there being, you know, essentially a hybrid of uh, like airship, you know, uh, some sort of gat, some sort of lighter than air airship with drone technology and it being like, really massive too in the way that it is but it could move absolutely silently with you know very very little power at a really you know slow pace at high altitude so you know there could be all sorts of weird things that are used for spying that we're not aware of you got to imagine that uh there's some severe competition when everybody's got satellites and everybody's got drones you know the impetus to sort of for one upmanship i think has got to be huge mm-hmm. in the private sector if not in the you know uh pentagon itself things are heating up geopolitically especially with the uh, south china sea right now so it makes sense it's just a we might just start shooting each other's shit out of the sky right yeah it's a whole lot of posturing too yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd, be, I'd rather that it's posturing with flying robots than with yeah. human beings. Maybe it is yeah. a little more human. Right? All things should be settled. Yeah, we yeah. should have we should have world leaders just fight each other in rock'em sock'em robots. <laughs> <laughs> right with you. I vote for that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's let's get into the main topic tonight. So we're gonna leave the uh, the strange world of UAP or whatever not so strange world uh we're going to talk about cinema and the occult and chris this is something when we talk about having you come on that uh you know i really wanted to when you told me the topic i thought well you know we'd love to get ap strange on as well for you guys to talk about this i know you guys have been talking about it some amongst yourselves yeah we have been yeah and it's you know i mean it's something i definitely thought about uh because it's a central part to you know my practice when i was uh I guess in grad school, I started thinking about things or I got exposed to, you know, I guess this idea of the intersection of occult and art. Um, And it's got a huge, I mean, long history. And this isn't the sort of, I think that it's been really popularized in a lot of ways by the sort of Marina Abramovic uh, uh, spirit cooking uh, Pizzagate conspiracy stuff, this linkage of like, essentially it's satanic panic around modern art. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, really what it comes down to is that comes, I think it comes down to the similar thing that, you know, for anybody that's familiar with the work of Austin Osmond spare in the early part of the past century, he's the guy that essentially invented sigil magic as we know it now. Um, and was sort of a contemporary of the elder Crowley's though he, rejected really working with them, but he has this fantastic sort of, you know, uh, essentially the art that he was doing was a, you know, magic, spiritual, supernatural working, but it was also in many ways, like a psychological, uh, experiment, you know, delving into the psyche. You gotta imagine that this is all coming after the rise of psychoanalysis. So it's still really fresh in people's brains, but, um, and I think that that when you get to cinema, which is in many ways like a contemporary of psychoanalysis when it w- came about and uh, a lot of the experiments in cinema and a lot of the avant-garde uh, stuff, which is where you find these intersections with the occult. Uh, and really, it's because people are trying to explore mysteries. They're trying to explore the unknown. Um, and uh, it doesn't 
come from, I think, anything but that sort of level, same level of curiosity that get people who are into magic, say, looking for the grimoires. It's just so happens these people are artists, so they express themselves in this output of stuff. And the occult is, you know, very much a part of it. And this is before the occult, you know, and I guess at, at that same time too, the occult was a becoming sort of a culturally popular thing because it was, you know, the uh, occult revival that was happening, you know, in the 20s, 30s, um, uh, and that keeps sort of happening every, you know, few decades. So anyway, uh, cinema there are certain people that I thought we could talk about that are approaching um, filmmaking from that same perspective that Austin Osmond Spare was as an artist, where they're approaching it, uh, not trying to make a film about the occult as a topic or about something mystical or spiritual or supernatural as a topic, but the filmmaking process itself and their art, for lack of a better term, is in and of itself some sort of magical working and they're integrating things in there. Um, so that's kind of where I chose the talking points that we're going to discuss from here. So I don't know if anybody has any comments or thoughts on that, questions, things. Very, very well said. Uh, this is going to be interesting. And you are an insider as a filmmaker yourself. You know, to be 100% honest, this is what I teach. Um, I don't teach film theory per se, but I do teach, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a film professor. I teach at a small university in Maryland. Um, it's my job. Um, and, uh, I specialize essentially in like experimental film, though I do teach the practice of like actually making filmmaking a lot of how I teach it. And a lot of the classes I teach integrate theory and history in there. So it is something that I do spend my time researching. When you think about like the time period you're talking about too, that's also, the overlaps with surrealism. And I, I think a lot of people don't give surrealism as much credit as it maybe should have for how much occult stuff is kind of interwoven in it and how many of the, the aims of surrealism in general are, are aimed directly at the same thing, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the three people I can think of are Jumaine Delac, uh, Dali and Bunuel, who were like these three filmmakers that were, the sort of crucial filmmakers for the surrealist movement and um, the surrealists, you know, as far as my understanding of like the core, one of the core aims of surrealism was what they called pure psychic automatism. And again, this is coming out of the same thing, like you mentioned, you know, uh, this same time uh, as I was referring to. So it is coming straight out of psychoanalysis and um, psychiatry as a thought process and a philosophy, I guess, uh, coming into being. So it was very much thinking about the unconscious. And the idea was that the surrealists wanted to directly access the unconscious. There was this idea of like somehow surpassing the uh, ego and getting to that unconscious there. Um, and that a lot of right, the, ways, like the Yeah, go ahead. The term surrealism actually comes from super realism. Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to be uh, hinting at the underlying reality that's actually greater than the mundane reality that we perceive. So it's pretty mystical anyway, right? Oh, totally. And, and a big thing yeah. was trying to get people to look or like change their perspective on something that is uh, like normal or mundane. And a lot of the ways they would go through that are these, you know, like methods of shock, sex, 
this idea of sort of shocking the unconscious, like, like, like bypassing sort of your senses through shock. And this is just one of the ways uh, or nonsense. Like that's why people associate surrealism with these things that are like nonsensical or, you know, shocking is because the idea is somehow to like circumvent your consciousness to get directly to your unconscious and unlock something. Mm -hmm. Some of it is almost exactly the same as what you see in channeling and, and mysticism and things like that. 100%. Yeah. There was a, a <laughs> thing that they would do called automatic writing, um, right. you know, yeah. which was essentially automatic. Or, yeah, no, right. Am I, I'm switching the terms, aren't I? Or was it, do they also, no, they both use the same terms. I mean, automatism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, automatism basically. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're borrowing stuff from spiritualism too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like which was culturally kind of had been a fad, but you know, it was also informing this. Yeah. I mean, a lot of their things, the exquisite corpse where you would sort of pass around. I don't know if anybody did this as a parlor game where you would either pass around a note where you'd start a poem with one line, fold it over, give it to somebody else. They'd write a line or you would do it with a drawing. And the idea was to sort of create this collective like Frankenstein's monster that somehow is like drawn out of the collective unconscious uh, and that is joined blindly by, you know, several people that are making it together. All of these games, a lot of games were involved, uh, but not just games like rituals. Ouija board very much was involved. Uh, you know, uh, it was really interesting kind of merging of the idea of creative play and uh, sort of spiritual, spiritual or mystical, like channeling or, um, uh, you know, uh, allowing yourself to be ridden or accessed, you know, or the muse to speak through you in a way, I guess, which in this case would be your unconscious, you know, somehow flooding out. And all these influences um, that impacted art yeah. go on to shape film for people with this train of thought. And it's like a way to explore the unconscious and the mystical. We think in pictures, so film is a perfect way of speaking to that part of the mind that dreams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're, you know, the, that images are the, uh, as a colleague of mine says, the lingua franca of our, you know, day and age, and especially moving images more and more. It's really interesting. You know, if you think, if you want to think about things in sort of like a larger uh, uh, like mystical conspiratorial control system, um, which some like to do, including me, uh, you can think about how strange cinema is and how much influence it has had on our society more than, you know, not more, well, more than many things, but there are other forms of media that have had some, but there's something very particular about cinema and the fact that it still exists. And I use cinema broadly. I mean, I know I'm saying it kind of as an academic term and it's just because I'm used to it and it's Im embedded in my brain. But what I really mean is like moving images. So yeah, it started out as film, but that form of like the sort of narrative, or even if it's a non-narrative, this idea of like conveying information through this simulacrum of reality that is takes a you know 3d world and places it in a 2d world that hasn't gone away i mean even if you even tiktok it's the same thing you know look at all the stuff where you know uh people who are sort of famous doing essentially camera tricks on tiktok it's all language of cinema uh and stuff like that so I and the meta vr world does not seem to be picking up as fast as i think 
they projected. It keeps on having. I think, like, I think augmented reality is going to be the yeah. thing. That I, I totally agree with AP on that. And I think that uh, augmented reality is a much more sort of magical use of the, uh, the, the technology too. Like, you know, if you think about some of the, well, I mean, some of the tenets of certain, certain types of ceremonial magic, you're essentially trying to train yourself to, you know, imprint uh, onto the real world in your vision, you know, signs and symbols and sigils and things like that. And I think the potentials of augmented reality for that kind of, um, uh, for, I guess, taking the world that we live in and um, weirding it is really like I, I much more interesting than essentially being in like a, a it's almost like a, a 3d it's a it's essentially being in a game which is great like i love gaming and stuff like that i think that vr gaming probably would be great if the technology wasn't so expensive but i don't know it feels different to me at least and i'm sure there's plenty of studies on this stuff i think dr future has gotten into a lot of it but yeah engaging with the moving image on screens or projections also puts us into a uh, altered state. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is this sort of like, uh, uh, you know, constant waking uh, trance of sorts. Yeah. So I guess well, one wonders about that too, though, because of a short, short attention span people have now. <laughs> yeah. People watch movies at home and they're kind of half watching, but also looking at their phone. And, Maybe that's, uh, that's like the opposite yeah. of trance. It's like, you know, uh, oblivion. It's like, you know, I don't know. It's a there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we talked about this kind of like in our last round table, but I don't want to, you know, belabor the point, but like you mentioned TikTok. Well, I mean, talk about, low attention span th- theater i mean it's just it's it's real hard for people to get to get like too involved into things now <laughs> what is the filmmaker's opinion <laughs> uh well i mean i i think so but at the same time you know i feel like the older i get the more i realize that there's the whole like old man versus youth thing that ends up happening right. no matter what so i don't want to mm-hmm. i guess i don't want to jump to conclusions you know the same way that I don't know, my parents thought music videos were stupid or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, whatever, whatever. I feel like there's a, you know, each generation you can see the same thing happening. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with TikTok. I mean, most of the stuff I see on there, the only thing that I found to be really interesting is the fact that people are really getting good at doing almost these like Michelle Gondry type in camera, you know, or not in camera edit type. Uh, things where you know you'll it'll be a trick like i'll have forced perspective or it'll be like a mug here and you'll think that it's tiny but it's really huge or something like that nobody could see what i just did but i held a mug up to the screen so there's a lot of like cool visual tricks that i see people doing there and i don't know you know what it's going to do in terms of influencing students most of the students that i work with are still interested in moving image in some way shape or form even if it's like episodic so they're interested in it as like a storytelling, you know, conveying emotions and story and theme. Uh, so, you know, but they all do watch TikTok and, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that informs yeah, I mean, what they do. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie Quick has pointed out a couple of times that a, there are a lot of TikTokers. There's like a whole genre of it that's um, reality shifting, I think is what they call it, or reality yeah. bending. Yeah. So they're basically doing something magical with these short form 
video segments and that yeah at least to them they're shifting their reality and bending it to their will you know yeah and that which may mean to them they're also living in a, a an extra life in a uh, fictitious universe or something like that but you know um it, it's it's still fascinating it kind of plays into the same thing so yeah it's totally uh, fascinating yeah. wouldn't be too dismissive of it <laughs> you're talking about a narrative but a lot of these filmmakers we're going to explore tonight kind of go outside of that uh normal narrative storytelling paradigm right right incorporate I guess, what you're talking yeah, about. yeah i guess i should use the term narrative yeah i probably shouldn't use the term narrative because at least with you know uh cinema it has such specific connotations but i think what i mean is uh you know there's a certain uh like it's time-based so that there's in the same way that there you know a ritual has something that has like a beginning a middle and an end there's some sort of sequence or uh that happens there rather than it being like a photograph or a symbol or a sigil where it's like all at once. Uh, and I guess that's what I mean by narrative. Um, yeah. Some, uh, yeah, yeah. But you're right to point that out. Cause I think that, you know, there's a, a lot of times it will be like the fracturing of a normal story narrative that will be part of the work that they do. Yeah. Cause there's something else going on, something that isn't easily explained. Um, so this art really provides the, the best and, canvas for that. And a lot of times I think it's the same reason why, you know, talking about the surrealists, why you would use this idea of shock or is it in sort of prompting the viewer or the audience not to passively take in uh, information, but it, it creates sort of like, you know, it makes me think of, uh, again, you know, whatever caveats we want to say about uh, Carlos Castaneda as a person or as like a cult leader some of the information in the books I find to be interesting, especially because it comes from a lot of anthropological texts. He stole it from as far as I can tell. Uh, and there's this one thing that was, you know, done where you basically like you get struck on the back to shift what's called your assemblage point, uh, which, you know, in this particular cosmology, which isn't really novelism, but it comes from certain Mesoamerican tribes. Uh, you know, there, there's this, uh, uh, it's essentially like your your the the center point of uh, your consciousness, and uh, it's supposedly when you get struck by a a shaman in this particular way, it shifts your perspective. Um, and I I think a lot of times the way that I've thought about you know filmmaking and uh, experimental filmmaking uh, in that you know filmmaking that has these sort of non narrative elements is that it's it's similar to that. You're like trying to shock people into uh, uh, taking in this information or perceiving things through their senses in a different way. The the guy who was my mentor was this guy, uh, Tony Conrad, and he was a he was an experimental musician and filmmaker and artist. And some people might have heard of him, particularly in the um, the the music world he uh he was doing like collabs with sonic youth and stuff like that um up until he passed a few years ago there's a uh there's a documentary on him called i think uh living in the present which is a really cool uh documentary but anyway he did this film called the flicker and it was uh, the first film that he uh did that sort of you know made him notable in the late 50s and it was this film which was essentially uh he came up with a particular pattern he was a, a harvard mathematician and he was interested in doing with film trying to send people into some sort of uh 
you know, uh, psychosis or uh, affect them mentally, like not as hypnosis, but like essentially like shocking them into an altered state of consciousness. And so, you know, he put together this film called The Flicker, which was you watch it. It essentially looks like this rapidly flickering black and white. And that's what it was, is that it was, you know, just these flickering flame, flickering frames of black and white. And uh, but he had a particular mathematical pattern and he had this as almost I think it was some sort of algorithm. I, I don't remember. But, you know, he would always sort of, you know, in, in insinuate that it was something he figured out that, you know, if you do this the right way and you do you have the right circumstances, this will send people into a different conscious state. And, you know, this was the kind of stuff that these a lot of these filmmakers were doing. It wasn't just uh, I want to make something weird for weird sake. Like they were trying to enact change upon, you know, reality. Uh, mm -hmm. really interesting um but anyway so yeah i think that and i mean ritual magicians did that too though yeah i mean absolutely. the golden dawn had like a cabinet that you could rotate through um different colored glass yep. you were getting hit with different colored lights yeah and it was supposed to change your perception and i mean one of the oldest forms of magic is just staring into a flickering flame you know absolutely like, no you yeah. totally absolutely man and tony knew all that yeah. like that's where he's you know he's he was he was the one who turned me on to, you know, Kenneth Anger and all and all the stuff. Not that that was his deal, but he's like, oh, you're into this. Check all this stuff out. I wasn't alone, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess let's let's start. We'll talk about the first person on the list you have here is David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, know you're a big David Lynch fan. Yeah, so. he's I, I, I really do like his work. Um, and, you know, I think that. Uh, I think his work is very interesting because of uh, the sort of occult underpinnings in it. I don't necessarily know if Lynch is trying to enact some sort of change as much as I think that Lynch is more working from a standpoint of what I would say, like channeling almost like his, his big philosophy. And if anybody's familiar with, uh, he wrote this book, it's a book of like aphorisms, which is very him called catching the big fish. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a lot of him talking about his creative process through these sort of Zen Cohen, like uh, uh, little sentences or paragraphs where he talks about essentially diving into the collective unconscious um, and, you know, uh, through his meditative practice and trying to fish for ideas uh, and talking about how, you know, these ideas or these stories or these things that he talks about, they come to him not from his own idea, but from, uh, you know, him fishing in the collective unconscious. And I think that he believes to some very real extent, particularly because he's kind of steeped in Vedic philosophy through his uh you know, his, his interactions and his allegiance to the transcendental meditation movement. Um, he thinks about this as being, you know, something that he is kind of channeling. Even you want to talk about it like a, you know, muse inspiration or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's um, uh, the, 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 what you see on screen is very much coming, at least he believes from someplace that's not himself. Uh, so you got to keep that in mind when you're thinking of sort of the themes and the symbols that are in his stories. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, there's also the added thing of Mark Frost, who is the person who wrote Twin Peaks with him. If we're specifically talking about Twin Peaks, is that Mark Frost is like a huge 
occult history geek. And uh, if you've ever, if for anybody who are, is a Twin Peaks fan that's read The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which is a novel that Mark Frost put out right before uh, the, the Twin Peaks, uh, The Return season three came out, it essentially creates this meta meta narrative uh, theory of everything that connects Twin Peaks to Lewis and Clark theosophy, ancient Native American, you know, uh, stuff, uh, Jackie Mason, Richard Nixon, like every conspiracy, you know, <laughs> and everything that's talked about on this show and where did the road go and everything else, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I think he, he even mentions the weird guru that I am into Meher Baba uh, in there once. And it's, you know, pretty comprehensive uh look at the inside of mark frost's brain so i think that's where you get this special sort of combination of mark frost and david lynch with twin peaks and it creates uh you know what what twin peaks is <laughs> yeah i think twin peaks and david lynch have really become a big entry point for people into this idea of esoteric film in the same way i think that kenneth anger probably was for previous generations yeah, very much so, because they're they're both uh, esoteric, you know, I think in their origins and process, but also esoteric in their themes and their content. So you get a lot from them. Um, and they're both very uh, well studied in the history of Hollywood and the mysteries of Hollywood, too. Um, and of course, Kenneth Anger came out with those Hollywood Babylon books that are really great and like detail a lot of the early seediness of of uh the early uh 20th century hollywood and all that kind of stuff yeah very interesting he was heavily involved with that scene um so for people that aren't familiar with kenneth anger he was a filmmaker that came out of uh sort of well he came into prominence in the 60s um uh but he uh he made a film probably in terms of you know esoteric filmmaking uh there's two films that are most notable one uh, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome that features the illustrious uh, Scarlet Woman herself, Marjorie Cameron, mm -hmm. uh, the Marjorie Cameron that was uh, Jack Parsons, Scarlet Woman, part of, you know, the whole Babylon working thing, you know, um, and it's kind of cool because Marjorie Cameron, I have to say, she kind of gets a lot of times, you know, when people are talking about her, she is relegated to that being sort of a side note to the Jack Parsons story. Uh, but she's really interesting in and of herself. And that's one of the yeah. main things that uh, Kenneth Anger was trying to do was sort of like highlight her um, on her own, you know, merits. Uh, he was, you know, Anger was a Thelemite and a, a Crowley sort of devotee, though later on, I don't think he, I don't know if he ever had any contact. It's one thing that I probably should know, but I don't. You know, she used to, you know, she was, she was very well known as an artist. I tried to get uh, Spencer Kanza. Yeah. We did a whole book on her. I tried to get him on the show, but it just never worked out. One interesting thing about her, she used to go to um, Van Tassel's uh, conventions out there in the Giant Rock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she did. She was in with the contactee crowd. Yeah. Yeah. She was in with that whole scene. Yep. And anger was, I mean, a lot of that scene was, you know, there was crossover like uh, anger had crossover with Manson, you know, uh, like there are very few degrees separating a lot of these groups. Um, and I think, you know, anybody who probably wants to know more about that should talk to go rightly. But um, yeah, uh, yeah Bobby like, Beausoleil. Bobby Beausoleil. Yeah. So the yeah. other 
for the sort of famous film that uh, he did is Lucifer Rising, which is essentially him trying to invoke Lucifer uh, a la Crowley, you know, uh, in a, th- a thelemic way uh, by, you know, making this film shot in Egypt with, um, you know, Marian Faithful playing Isis. And it was originally supposed to be Mick Jagger playing Osiris, but yeah, there was a problem. And it was after, I think, Altamont, and he couldn't do it. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's and then, you know, Kenneth Anger is doing his, you know, he's in a circle doing his, his ritual summoning and stuff like that. Bobby Beausoleil did the uh, soundtrack for it. Uh, a really after, cool one. Yeah, after uh, uh, Jimmy Page, they had a falling out. There is a version of it with the Jimmy Page soundtrack that exists out there. But yeah, it's a cool, it's a very cool um, uh, soundtrack. And they were tight, you know. Uh, uh, Is that recorded in prison? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was recorded in prison, right. Yeah. I know Jimmy Page Page is in it. Like he's. Yeah, he is in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find, I mean, it's pretty easy to find like versions of this. If people are interested, like even they might be low res versions, but they're around. If you just look on YouTube uh, and you, and there's some great collections now on DVD of like all of his films, specifically the collection of anger films. If people are interested, is called the magic lantern cycle. Uh, and if you look for that, uh, you know, you can find, I think there's all a DVD that has all of it on there. Um, He's a weird dude. He says Lucifer tattooed across his chest. He's like 88 now, I think. Yeah, he's still he's still trucking. It's, uh, and the soundtrack to Lucifer Rising, the post layer version. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really killer. It's, it's totally really, killer. really great music. It yeah. really is. <laughs> it's is crazy there- to think it was recorded under prison, you know? Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Are there particular reasons you think that Twin Peaks really resonated with so many people? Because it's, uh, you know, you, either you get it or you don't. A lot of people who are not, you know, into esoteric stuff as much as us, of course, is are really into it, too. And it really strikes a chord with people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for one, Lynch has an uncanny ability cinematically to, you know, like he's, he's just one of those people that I think naturally he's able to make things work cinematically. And I think a lot of that has to do with his ability to create environments with image and sound like he does the sound design on all his films still and i think that it's one of those things that it's just that little it's the you know i mean lynch himself like really kind of refuses to talk about you know uh uh and analyzing most of his work and he says you know it's it, it is it speaks for itself it is what it is and i think that's part of his you know sort of weird eccentricity genius is that he has these intuitive notions of what works and it just so happens that it's something that sort of works universally for a lot of people that being said i mean ebert gave uh blue velvet like one thumb or one star no thumbs the both thumbs down hated it when it came out so you know i mean critics are going to be critics but uh i think it really has to do with the fact too that i i do think there's something um uh what how would i say it like the gestures that david lynch makes i think are um there is some like genuine weight behind it in that he's not the fact that it is honest and i'm going to make and this is just you know this is my own 
sort of interpretation of it. Take, for instance, a filmmaker like Ari Aster, who did Midsummer and Hereditary, and he's dealing with sort of occult themes, um, does some research, obviously, also very good filmmaker, uh, but and somebody who people like a lot. Um, I think that the difference between like him and David Lynch is that one is a filmmaker that is making a film about something they think is interesting. The other is somebody who is doing a mystical uh, sort of channeled <laughs> work. And I think that that actually comes through. There's something that comes through. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. Like Dune didn't work. Um, but when I, Lynch is given sort of free reign, I think, there's something that does come through that is like the the uh uh that maybe is some of what those surrealists were trying to get at that yeah. pure psychic autism yeah. i was gonna say it's like authentic surrealism yeah. where he's managing to tap those archetypes and images and build off of it with like a modern kind of americana based mythology exactly. that's, that, that resonates with everybody um very at least well here said. you know like very well said um and dune, it would have been really interesting to see the the uh yodorowsky dune yeah yeah which is a great documentary in itself about that i watched the, i watched that a few weeks ago yeah, oh, yeah. that's cool. that really is it's funny how close some of these guys are i mean hodorowsky would have been another interesting person so Absolutely. alejandro you know another interesting you know to person to make dune you know i don't know it could have been equally as much of a failure as uh um lynch's dune you know it had well, it was supposed to be like nine stuff. hours long nine or hours something. long yeah yeah it might have been a good uh money laundering operation for some seedy side of hollywood could you could you imagine dolly as the as the emperor you know just like, oh my god you know, right he, he said he wanted uh, he he made all these demands dolly did all these ridiculous demands and one of the things that he wanted he wanted a, can i have a giraffe in the scene with me totally it was something like you know just <laughs> dolly also wrote a marx brothers movie did you <laughs> did he really uh-uh. which one well they never made it oh but but they ended up turning it into a graphic novel a couple of years ago so you can buy the Salvador dolly lost marx brothers movie as a um as a graphic novel (laughs) if you're so inclined interesting i think one thing that uh lynch does really well is uh bringing the absurd to all this um and i think that's one of the missing elements um that you that you mentioned chris between people writing these more like explicitly yeah movies versus like you know because high strangeness and the absurd is a big part of these mysteries and the paranormal that's a great point. I think that's probably what makes it complete. You're right. I think that's what makes it feel whole. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I have sort of thought about that, but I'm, I'm glad you reminded me. Uh, and I, it, it's, I mean, his company is called Absurda, you know, that's, that's one of his production companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's um, that integration of the absurd, this idea of the trickster, um, you know, this idea or, the the representation of something that feels uh, not quite right. It's not a stylized representation. You know, it's interesting, like, you know, I think there could be probably a whole academic paper, not that I'm going to do it, written on his use of special effects and, you know, the particular types of special effects that he uses. Like, if 
you really look at it, particularly in Twin Peaks, he uses this really weird, almost like it's not like it's intentionally looking realistic. It almost looks like it's made to look kind of crappy CGI. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you compare it with his sculptures and his paintings, it looks almost exact. It's like he's bringing to life his sculptures and paintings. So, you know, I mean, there's something he's doing there that I think is really weirdly symbolic and, you know, uh, uh, nobody quite um uh, understands uh but somehow is like made it past didn't work in dune but um you know it makes it past uh like the censors so to speak or people just kind of say oh that's him being weird but some of the absurdity of that or like the the it being something that like your brain can't quite wrap its head around the dimensions or why it looks like that or why it's doing that is completely by design yeah Okay, so Chris, I mean, I got to ask you about this. Um, Lost Highway as a UFO abduction story. Okay, yeah. This may help me finally understand Lost Highway. So it is something that, you know, uh, it pro- this probably originated with a person who, who I'm not able to give credit to, but it's something that's talked about, I guess, in like academic David Lynch circles, uh, is this idea of lost highway as uh essentially a ufo abduction uh not i don't want to say 20 and back but it's something like something like that like that's what it's representing it's representing um so if people are familiar with lost highway there's this uh essentially it it's it starts out with this character that is played by um bill pullman mm-hmm. um and then halfway through the film the character essentially wakes up as uh, what's his name? Uh, Balthazar Getty <laughs> in a prison. Um, uh, and it's, it's like the, the, and again, you can look at this in Mulholland drive too. There's this idea of sort of like um, the doppelganger, which he's worked with a lot in twin peaks, but in particular in lost highway, there's this, and maybe I've just glommed onto a rumor or something that I heard, but I think that if you examine it, um, at, if you think of it as a UFO abduction story in a similar way to like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the not not specifically the secret space program, but one of those ones where there is a, a dilation of time um, that's an integral part of it, that it kind of makes more sense in that there is this like, uh, we don't know who the entity was. I mean, the only sort of person who's representing it is the smiling man uh, played by Robert Blake, who's like, we're in your house right now. But even that right there, uh, like, I feel like it's coming at it from almost a Whitley Strieber abductions. So it's not like you're getting picked up, but it's like you take the Whitley Strieber story and then you sort of like combine it with Travis Walton's secret space program. And if you examine or like watch Lost Highway from that perspective, there's all this other stuff that's going on there that, you know, I'm sure people could maybe or maybe not find connections with, but it reads to me. And I watched it like last year and thought about this. And I'm like, okay, I'm good with it as a sort of like, yeah, either alien or, I mean, I'm going with alien. It could, I guess, be a Faye abduction story. You know, if Josh were here, he'd say, what's the difference? But, you know, um, yeah. So maybe tell me I'm crazy. Or if you're the one that came up with this, you can uh, chastise me and sue me for libel. Yeah. You know, that's the movie that like I think I feel is like the most inscrutable. <laughs> it's, 
even Mulholland Drive. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I mean, as crazy as it is, you're still just kind of just like, well, it makes sense. You know, I see what he's doing. But Lost, Lost Highway makes sense in a way, but it's just that that switch is just weird. And you're just like, why did he do this? Yeah. Why I don't, why I cannot tell yeah. you. And, but I will say that, you know, I do understand to some degree where he's coming from, where he says like, you know, I just do things because they feel right. Cause I think I'm supposed to do this, you know? Um, uh, and I've had that feeling before, not that it necessarily mm-hmm. works out, but um, it's there uh, and wherever it's coming from um, it can be louder or quieter. I think, depending on how receptive you are to it. You also mentioned occult Hollywood brainwashing in, in Mulholland drive. Which I could see that. That's another thing. That's like, so I guess, you know, this is more along the lines of sort of a Kubrick uh, type um, conspiracy. But, you know, another one that I've come across is that uh, to some degree, Mulholland Drive is, you know, he's inserting some of what he uh, or representations of some of what he noticed in Hollywood uh, in terms of a cult uh, like uh, brainwashing and that's in particular like with the uh the character um of that's played by uh naomi watts um uh, i'm sorry not naomi watts uh the one that's played by uh laura herring um and her involvement with what you know are never sort of literally uh spoken of as like dark occult forces but kind of is um uh, and then her showing up again in Inland Empire as sort of part of this cadre of like lost Hollywood chanteuses. Now, I, I don't I don't necessarily know if there's any credence to that, but it's something that, you know, I've heard uh, amongst the sort of myriad David Lynch um, conspiracies or mysteries or rumors that exist out there. And, you know, I I, I don't know if it personally, I don't think from what I know of Lynch as a filmmaker and artist, I don't think that he would do anything like that. Cause I don't think he, he works that way. I think the opposite is probably, I, I would say the opposite might be true of uh, Kubrick. Like, uh, and we could talk about that thing that AP brought up, which was uh, uh, this interesting article to go rightly wrote about um, eyes wide shut. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I guess I just don't think, I don't think Lynch does that kind of uh, the, you know, it, the, he, he'll put mystical and spiritual sort of symbology and, and, and uh, uh, Easter eggs in there, but I don't think he's putting, you know, uh, cons- pedo conspiracies or, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. brainwashing conspiracy. Well, he was the target of one too, from the uh, actor that played the man from another place, the, the arm. Yeah. The guy that, who, that guy the- like, yeah, yeah, he went off his rocker and started accusing David Lynch of being part of this like Hollywood elite pedophile thing, and yeah, he was like all a Trumper and Pizzagate kind of guy. Yeah, um, that's that's why he's not in the Return. <laughs> yeah, that's why he's not in the Return, and instead he's played by a weird sculpture that David Lynch put together. Yeah, yeah, that looks like a tree or something. Yeah, it's like a weird <laughs> demon tree. Let's let's talk about the Kubrick thing because you know I read this article. Uh, back whenever i first one of the times i first had go brightly on back in the day yeah right and that's uh from what i remember you know it's just he's he's got a lot of mind control things in there that's that's interesting and, and right it made me think of like the wizard of oz which go rightly gets around to at the end of that article 
Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And if you want to talk more about L. Frank Baum, you can at the end there. But yeah, basically, it's you know, and I, I remember reading this too uh, a, a while back. Um, but it, essentially, Adam Go Rightly uh, um, is making a uh, the case for uh, Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut as being uh, having like numerous veiled allusions to MK Ultra and Monarch Sex Slave uh, programming. Um, and a lot of that has to do, and this is why I, I personally like, I mean, beyond usually liking sort of go rightly's take on things. I I'm not a, a big Kubrick conspiracy, you know, adherent, but I do think that if there's anything that, you know, rings true to me, it would be this in, in that uh, there are a lot of like anomalies that are very unkubrick like that uh, he sort of points out in the way that the film uh, was made that makes him think at least that what Kubrick is essentially alluding to is just what he experienced. Uh, and, you know, I mean, who was that? Uh, who was that Republican uh, uh, congressman that recently he had like one term and one of the first things he was a young guy and he was like, all the Republicans having these crazy sex orgies. They Madison invited me to a sex orgy. Yeah, Madison Cawthorn. Yeah. Right, exactly. And that combined with, you know, all the very, very, you know, easily um, backed up rumors of like Roger Stone and all his cronies and the, you know, mm -hmm. sex clubs in Manhattan they were going to. I have absolutely no doubt that there were, you know, uh, crazy sex party, uh, uh, eyes wide shut things going on in Hollywood and amongst. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Roger Stone is openly into S&M for, you know, I mean, like. <laughs> And I wouldn't be surprised to, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein is a real thing. And, you know, uh, sure, he wasn't the first one yeah. going on with that, that this was going on, you know, uh, and Kubrick saw it and he was making a film that, you know, part of its sort of nature was to be this conspiratorial thing that is giving you these Easter eggs and these veiled references to something which is, you know, very real. Uh, it's not like it's trying to point the finger at some satanic ritual abuse. It's talking about something that, you know, actually yeah. is documented as going on. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and it basically, you know, people can, if people want to look, they can, you know, pretty easily find the, um, uh, find the article on there, but like, just for instance, um, uh, in this, you know, uh, one of the things he points out is how un unlike other Kubrick front films where, uh, characters are, have these sort of like really well-developed complex characterizations, the characters in the film are more sort of like cardboard cutouts and like, go rightly, like, okay, yeah. this is the desired effect. Uh, that Kubrick was going for. He's trying to make these people seem as if they're, you know, walking around post mind control. Uh, the choice of Kidman and Cruz, you know, was like specific casting because, yeah. uh, you know, of what they represent and also their sort of emotional depth. Um, uh, there's a lot of other things in there, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, 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 it seems like it's a pretty compelling and I think realistic argument as far. And I'm, you know, uh, the, the, Pizzagate type stuff is the last thing I'm, you know, uh, ever into. Not that this is anything like that, but even the room two, two, three, seven Kubrick moon landing stuff is, uh -huh. you know, doesn't hold much water for me, but I, th this seems yeah. like but it's so bonkers. It's fun. Yeah. I, oh, I, I yeah, love that movie. Yeah, 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 I mean, 
it's it's great people are reading so much into it they're like oh the there's a there's a can of tobacco up on the shelf with the native american man on it and that, that means this you know yeah. but then like we're gonna explore later like um who's to say how much of this isn't this kind of feedback loop at this point especially and who's to say that kubrick wasn't inspired by some conspiratorial I, type of ideas i mean there, there there's a couple weird things with that i mean the you brought up um kidman and cruz and it's like tom cruise being the most prominent probably scientologist uh and, and that playing a lot into their real life marriage where mm-hmm. uh i think kidman's father was a psychologist or something like that mm-hmm. so he basically considered his in-laws repressive people and of course they ended up getting divorced later yeah but uh kubrick was like holding them hostage for over a year <laughs> to yeah. film that movie yeah. well it's just you know the story and then he line... died before yeah. so he didn't even get the final cut you right know? right the storyline is based on that short story i forgot the name of the short story so a lot of those elements are still in there my sus my suspicion of what kubrick what what he pulled where he pulled that especially the ritual scene i think it really comes from what was going on in the 80s with roy Raiden, who was this holly who was really trying he was like this kind of he was kind of a he was a businessman uh had a lot of diversification all across the world he was trying to get into hollywood and be a big be a big time movie producer and he actually did manage to produce the movie The Cotton Club, which is the Francis Ford Coppola film. Well, Roy Radin was also very, very well known for having these elaborate parties that would just evolve into sex orgies on his Long Island estate. And he, that also stuff, that's also that comes, it comes up in the Mari Terry Ultimate Evil stuff. Uh, with the son of Sam, he tries to connect Roy Raiden to that. Well, Raiden dies mysteriously. He gets killed. Probably a mob hit, more than likely. And I think that some of that, those elements, I think, was what Kubrick pulled mm-hmm. into. Maybe he went to one of those parties. I mean, you never know. I think more than anything, too, he's just tapping into like what may exist in Hollywood at certain times is probably just a symptom of this like aristocratic permissive hidden occult element that is there in a lot of different time periods and societies um well i mean occult uh, you know not to jump to you know uh fast to another topic but uh occult in hollywood was you know a big thing and and especially in like early hollywood uh you know mysticism and a lot of the uh the the actors and studio heads we're sort of dabbling in occult revival stuff. Um, that's, you know, something that I touched upon when I've talked before a little bit about the, uh, the, the Meher Baba stuff, that Indian mystic in, in the, uh, that I know about because my parents were followers of him. He, you know, in the thirties, when he was traveling, he came to Hollywood and uh, he met with a lot of people like um, Greta Garbo and, one of the people that you know uh he made serious contact with was garrett fort who was the screenwriter who wrote both dracula and frankenstein uh and he was heavily garrett fort was heavily involved with mayor baba and was like going back and forth to india working on this uh 
uh, screenplay that was supposed to be um, like uh, sort of a representation of uh, the the spiritual journey of the soul uh, that never uh, came to fruition. But a lot of the the writers and stars uh, of early Hollywood were, you know, into similar stuff like, you know, inviting swamis and mystics and, uh, you know, interested in uh, you know, occult stuff that was coming over from Europe. Um, and a lot of that, I think, was influencing early Hollywood, too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think it's it's funny how how it's kind of subtly in there in old movies if you watch old movies and 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 um, that's kind of why I brought up the occult comedy stuff and in in the old like comedies from the thirties and yeah. uh, Marx Brothers and Three Stooges stuff uh, because it's very subtle. It's not like you know. The three stooges are doing like a summoning ritual or anything like that yeah <laughs> but there's these weird uh, weird little um you, you know just allusions to things like reincarnation and um or the afterlife and seeing how it was did like in old cartoons back then and stuff like, uh, it, it's it's kind of odd to uh to consider that you know w- we always think of, uh, I'm not we, but uh, we as a culture generally think of, of, uh, of things moving along progressively from like a more repressive era. But when you go to the pre Hays Code stuff, like there yeah. was like really crazy shit going on in those yeah. movies, yeah. you know? Um, and and uh, people think of it as being, you know, we've, we've moved... Uh, we've moved to our, towards a more liberal and inclusive and open to, to all kinds of uh, stuff and occult stuff as time goes on. But I mean, it was always there, you know, it was always right in there. But did and, you um, see the Grammys? <laughs> <laughs> well, she, did you want to get into that? The, the no. idiocy of the synchromistic. I think we will at the end. Let's, let's keep it. <laughs> Let's not let it devolve. Here. Just teasing it. We're just gonna keep yeah, teasing yeah. it. Yeah, let's yeah. let's talk about a couple here. Uh, what is what is the correct pronunciation? Alejandro Hodorowski. Hodorowski. Yeah. Hodorowski. Yeah, yeah, the J is like an H. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Hodorowski. I mean, you can chime in if there's anything. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're a Hodorowski. If you're a Hodorowski head, uh, AP, the Holy Mountain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Holy Mountain's pretty pretty wild it's a wild yeah. ride yeah have you seen holy mountain adam i have not seen it but oh, um, no I, I want to um 
especially after watching the the, the Dune documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, man, like, uh, what can you say about Holy Mountain? So first off, the guy, uh, Alejandro Hodorowski, if people aren't familiar with who he is, he is uh, a uh, crazy filmmaker that almost made Dune. Uh, he made this film called El Popo. Uh uh, all of these different films, um, you know, not all of them. He actually made uh, only a handful of films, uh, but he also, you know, uh, I think he's living in, uh, is he living in uh, Italy now? He's Span. Uh, I believe he's Spanish, right? Yeah, I think he's Chilean. I think. Chilean, right? Yeah, he was born in Chile. He is yeah. a Chil- oh, okay. Chilean. But uh, uh, anyway, he made uh, all of his films are uh, very sort of mystical cult films. But in particular, there's this film called The Holy Mountain, which he made in 73, um, which is it's this sort of wild uh, like it's got Jungian symbolism uh, in there along a lot with, of, like, all of this heavy alchemical tarot stuff. Uh, I, it's supposedly inspired by. Um, the uh, uh, ascent of Mount Carmel uh, by St. John of the Cross um, and mm. all this other stuff. You know, I mean, it's got like Hermetic, Kabbalah, Gnosticism, Christianity, Islam, whatever, you know, all sorts of stuff in there. Uh, heavy, heavy tarot. Um, but it's essentially this like, um, I, I want to say it's kind of like Game of Death or like one of those like uh, old like Kung Fu films where a guy has to go through this journey of many stages. Um, uh, but uh, it's this uh, Al- the alchemist is the name of the uh, the the sort of like uh, central figure um, and all of these sort of 10 major characters, I believe are supposed to embody alchemical aspects of the planets too. Um, Mm -hmm. But it essentially like follows this character, the alchemist who is played by Hodorowsky uh, himself. um, And he goes through this uh, sort of uh, journey that takes him into this like tower. uh, And there are all these sort of like pastoral scenes that he goes through. He's kind of like a, a, the fool or an animal man yeah 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 sort of like yeah like wandering through uh uh like a pilgrim but sort of feral and yeah and it's it's um essentially like as far as my analysis of it which is you know not necessarily the correct uh thing I think that a lot of this comes from um, surrealism, honestly. Like, I think a lot of it comes mm-hmm. from Boonwell. And there is this guy named Anton Artaud who had this thing called the Theater of Cruelty. Uh, and he was this really yeah. interesting mm-hmm. figure who was like this very esoteric, strange playwright and occultist. Um, oh. Let me let me add to that. Um, you know, not not about film per se, but I watched an excellent documentary about the living theater yes which you julian beck and i forgot his wife's name but they were both heavily influenced by arto yeah and like you know that that stuff is wild the stuff that they did yeah 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 no it's totally wild um and so and a lot of it i think I guess the reason why I bring that up is that, you know, I think a lot of it is um, this sort of like idea of like a performative ritual um, enacting some sort Mm -hmm. of change. Um, I don't want to say it's like perichoresis. That's 
you know, specifically having to do with passing through a doorway, but some sort of, you know, arch, but, you know, it's, I, I think that a lot of the stuff that Hodorowsky was doing was this idea that kind of gelled later in life when he ended up, uh, like if you go on his website, um, you know, you can see a lot of the stuff that he's doing now, but he had this film that uh, this documentary that came out maybe about, it was a while ago, but it was essentially on this practice he'd been doing called psycho magic, where he has been working with people using performance art as a way of sort of uh, uh, he would call them like acts of confrontation uh, where he'd be trying to heal people's trauma through having them go through these really like intense, weird ritualistic things that they would do that he called these acts of confrontation Um, again, coming very much from this sort of like, you know, the, that, that theater background there. Um, But yeah, he's uh you know, and he would draw everything from like uh, Kabbalah to Gurdjieff and, you know, all this other stuff into it, you know, into the mysticism of the psycho magic work that he would do. Um, and so I think that in his films, this is essentially him putting himself through these sort of, um, you know, these acts of confrontation almost. There's some really, there's some sort of controversial stuff too about a, uh, a rape scene in El Topo and the way in which he went about it and whether or not there was uh you know, actual sort of sexual violence going on there or not. It's hard because the way that he talks about things is he's one of those people who like, he he's an instigator and he likes to talk about things in a way that makes him sell. He's very Crowley-ish in that sense. So I don't know. And both, both films were kind of like stopped by the distributor. Like they didn't bother making too many copies and sharing them around. Right. I believe um, so. Yeah. And the though, production though, company, they were just didn't, prom- they, they were <laughs> kind of stopped it, but that made yeah. it more of a cult classic because yeah. it became like yeah. an underground thing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say that like, it was either George Harrison or John Lennon was um, uh, uh, helping sort of uh, promote it. I uh, think it was Lennon. Yeah. Was it Lennon? Lennon, yeah, yeah, Lennon yeah, convinced yeah. somebody to like finance yeah. it, but then yeah. they, it was one of the Beatles for producers pr- financed it, I think. But yeah, then yep. like Lennon was trying to like, he was like showing it around um, uh, uh, like New York and stuff. I think uh, one, mm. I think the role of the thief was offered to George Harrison too, at one point. Um, Is there a connection in that movie with the tarot as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the entire, he thing has his is, own yeah. tarot deck, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like he uses, you know, uh, beyond the sort of embodying of these different like fool, the fool archetype, uh, you know, he he has his well, it's not his own. It's he he worked and I don't know. I don't remember the name of the person he worked with, but um, they basically uh, it's a reprinting of the original Tarot de Marseille because he's really into the Tarot de Marseille. Like that's he he thinks there's one tarot that's it. You got to use that. He's not a, a big rider weight fan. So yeah, he, if you look for the uh, Hodorowsky's uh, Tarot de Marseille, uh, it's a good deck. I, I haven't. I want to mention uh, one that when we first started talking about this, I, I go down to my parents' house and my dad is watching this movie by Terrence Malick called Knight of Cups. And it is very kind of stream of consciousness, a lot more so than most of Terrence Malick's movies are, even though, you know, there's a lot of that in all his movies. You know, he's, this is a director who wants to, his ambition was to make a movie about the history of, of earth. Um, which I guess he finally did get to do, but 
this is heavily based in like not in a, the, the title alone, you know, but um, heavily based in the tarot, and it's it goes, it has like um, I think like eight sections to the film, and seven of those are all based on tarot cards. Yeah, I, I did a little like you'd mentioned this, and I looked into it a little bit, and I'm surprised I had never. I, I remember hearing about it, but. I never actually looked at it because I, I, I it uh, there's several things that are interesting in it to me. One being that it's got Brian Dennehy in it, one of his last roles. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but um, yeah, it's not only based on the uh, using the tarot, but it has uh, a lot of inspiration from Pilgrim's Pro- Progress, right? Um, yeah. uh, which mm-hmm. I'm very, uh, I'm quite interested in that. You know that 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 sort of tale and making. I'd like to make a film kind of like that at some point. I remember looking into, it, but I never ended up uh, watching it. But yeah, it looks really interesting. I, I mean, out of any filmmaker that you know hasn't made an explicitly esoteric film, uh, and I think you could probably argue that he has. Terrence Malick doesn't surprise me that he made this film. Um, yeah, absolutely. The guy who wanted to make the film. About- I think, what was it? Tree of Life, I think. I think it had some esoteric, some pretty esoteric elements, but it's it's much more, this one was much more in your face. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. About, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to watch it now. It's on my, no, though I have no time in a growing list. I got to watch this one. One you mentioned here, Maya Darren, I've never heard of yeah this. so she's a really imper- important person and i probably should you know um uh hey coco hold on because <laughs> i'm doing a podcast coco sorry baby and yeah, she's gonna be bothering me for the toy now um <laughs> so maya darren uh she is a experimental filmmaker and artist um and probably uh very famous within the filmmaker, particularly the avant-garde filmmaker community. Like everybody kind of knows her. She's like a a go-to person, but she is, you know, everybody should know her. Like if you, if you know David Lynch and like David Lynch or Hodorowsky or pretty much anybody, I'd say besides the surrealists, they've been influenced by Maya Darren. And um, uh, one of the sort of most notable things that she did um, is that she did uh, she got uh, um, uh, so so. First off, she's uh, sort of ge- uh, she's a general artist. So she, you know, meaning that she did many different types of forms. She did dance. Uh, she was a writer. Um, uh, she wrote a lot of great essays on film theory. Um, but she's most notable for her experimental films. Um, and she, towards the latter part of her career, or after she had made some sort of you know experimental films that were more in the non-documentary sense, she became really interested in uh, Haitian Voudon and in particular uh, it as like a dance form coming as a a dancer. So um, she had sort of made this name for herself in New York City as, you know, in the uh, art scene. Um, And from there, she ended up taking a trip to um, uh, Haiti and she was working with um, uh, practitioners there 
that would uh, were, were, were doing uh, trance drumming, um, sacrifice, and were uh, specifically doing uh, the possession, the riding, where the gods or the spirits, the Loa, uh, ride these people who offer themselves uh, to her, take possession of the dancers. Um, and uh, so she did a lot of this, like almost like ethnographic documentary film work there, but she really wasn't able to like cut it into anything um, uh, coherent. So she ended up uh, producing a book, the uh, film. Um, I think it was, uh, there's a film you can see called now called divine horsemen, the living gods of Haiti that uh, I believe her husband um, Teji Ito put together after her death. But uh, it very interesting work because a lot of her uh, writing and a lot of the experimental films that she made were dealing with these very similar ideas, uh, almost I would say similar to like uh, if anybody's familiar with the um, she's a writer and dancer uh, Alkistis uh, from um, Scarlet Imprint. Uh, you know, similar type of work uh, in that sense, uh, or I, I found some similarities to it. Um, but her sort of the particular types of film, in, in particular, this film called Meshes of the Afternoon uh, is one of the most, I'd say, inspirational, uh, like um, surrealist, experimental avant-garde films that's been made out there. And, you know, it's something that uh, David Lynch and, you know, Hodorowski and anybody who's been making stuff very much uh, uh, would are influenced by. But she's the kind of person that like, you know, uh, for instance, here's a quote from her uh, that, you know, the way she thought about cinema was as a magical practice. And she would she said this is her quote that says the pattern created by the film instrument transcends the intentions and the movements of individual performers. And for this reason, I have called it ritual. Um, and so that's the kind of, I mean, that sums up in many ways how she approached filmmaking. That's interesting. Like, like we've talked about before, I know, um, we've talked about how film is a lot like um, the, the Vog, Richard Wagner's idea of this like total art of, you know, having uh, music, performance, visual art, stagecraft, all these kind of things all in one. And I think it's really a, a continuation of you that. Absolutely hit it on the nail. I mean, she in fact says that in one of her uh, uh, seminal essays, the creative use of reality, she talks about, she refers to film as being uh, it's, it's like, I want to say like the, the uh, synthesis of all the plastic arts. And she says, essentially oh, wow. it's the same thing that she's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Let me see. Um, we should talk about, um, the Wizard of Oz, for sure. Now, you know, Baum being a theosophist, which I think I'm, I'm discovering everybody at that time period was a theosophist. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah club uh, in every city. Yeah. But that kind of plays into a lot of the modern conspiracy theory stuff, too, where um, I, I feel like a lot of people, aha, aha they were a theosophist. Like, mm-hmm. so what? Right, like, a right. lot of people yeah. were. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't a very exclusive club back then, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, Baum was writing about theosophy a little bit and said as much. Like, there's so many people that go to these uh, societies and clubs and all this, you know, um, it was very, very popular uh, and very much in the zeitgeist. But, um, 
but yeah, I mean, he, he, he was, and I, I think also he was a Mason. Um, hmm. but yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of weird ideas kind of in the Oz, uh, the wizard of Oz and, and, um, throughout the other stories that he wrote. But, uh, I, I think where you, where you have it, they attempted to make it a movie a couple different times before the one that everybody remembers, I think 38 or 39, mm-hmm. um, has become like one of the most iconic, like Hollywood things. It's kind of movie magic. Like it had never been done before and kind of wasn't matched again, um, for, for the scope of what they accomplished with that movie. Um, I, I think it just kind of solidifies a place in, um, you know, the, the general consciousness of the culture, it, some of that stuff is just so, so iconic. And I think it has a lot to do with that. That was kind of written into it. So, yeah. Um, it's interesting too. Uh, I mean, I think that like that type of, I was mentioning, I think I said something like this to you and we were chatting about it AP, but I feel like I find the wizard of Oz interesting because it's, you're still seeing this idea of the other or the alien that's not based on the sort of Gernsbachian like hard science fiction, you know, it's like prior mm-hmm. to the flying saucer sort of space, you know, like the space, basically mm-hmm. the space age idea of, of, you know, otherness and alienness and, you know, the uh, Oz and the, you know, alien creatures that exist within there all having this, you know, this interesting like kind of quality to them that I feel is almost like a, you know, anti humanoid or anti anthropomorphic type, uh, you know, uh, like starting point in the same way that if you look at notions of, you know, who lived on the moon or Mars prior to the space age, it was like bat bat people, you know, yeah. Pigmen, yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's like an, it's the other side. It's like the fantasy world or the, yeah. Yeah. It has more to do, I think with the idea, you know, and again, this is a theme we see come up all the idea of like fay fairyland, you know, um, that because wizard of Oz has that kind of feel to it, but not quite, you know, it's that it's, you know, somewhere in between. And then ultimately at the end, the, the revelation of this, this hoodwink, you know, by the wizard. I think that's pretty. Yeah. I always got this feeling, you know, uh, this sense, and maybe it was from the wizard of Oz film and not the books of like there being this, you know, <laughs> the, the theme of technology eclipsing magic, mm. you know, yeah, uh, or technology eradicating magic, you know, that I always got that vibe from the Wizard of Oz in some way. Um, so it's interesting, you know, it being, or at least the film that everybody remembers as being the first color film, even though I don't think it actually, it wasn't actually, um, you know, uh, there it it, it it's become so iconic. Was- What's that? It was the dramatic use of color, I think, yeah, that made it so distinguished because it starts it, in black and white, and then yeah. with yeah. the ruby slippers and everything. Yeah, it's right. it's you know again when I go back to this idea of why things happen the way they are, you know, uh, it seems you know almost faded that the the Wizard of Oz was like this pivot point, you know, where we were moving from you know yeah. one one fantasy zeitgeist to another, and it. It beginning, you know, on that like 
in that prairie world, you know, that's like still kind of in between the, the industrial and the old world, all that kind of, I can definitely see that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's also this idea that no, no one ever dies in Oz and that's not made clear in the first story that everybody's familiar with. But when you go into the whole series of stories, yeah, there's no death in Oz. Like death isn't a thing there. But what happens in the the rest of the stories? uh, It follows all the other characters. You know, I haven't read all of them, but (laughs) you you know, you get like the full story of the Tin Man or um, you just kind of, it's kind of world building in a way. He's just building out Oz and exploring all these other different places. And uh, there, there are serious Oz heads out there and people that have written their own kind of fan fiction. And now one of the ones I wanted to bring up was, um, a story called The Invisible NZ of Oz that was written as a result of uh, Ouija board communication oh. between two kids in like the, the 30s and 40s, I think. And I don't know how you write an entire book with it using a Ouija board. It must have taken forever. But, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, well, I guess it's not a full book, but it's more just a short story. But it uh, it got accepted as Oz Canon and published in yeah. their uh, fanzine because uh, L. Frank Baum's wife, I think, was still alive and she kind of gave it the seal of approval. Um, so, so that's that's an odd little tidbit. I, I would like a, to track down this story, but I have a bit of Oz from the other side. Well, right. It could be the most legitimate Oz story, uh, but I found an article about it in an old state magazine. There's so. cool things that have been, you know, uh, channeled through Ouija boards. There was, uh, I feel like Ren Collier talks about this. Uh, he's all, one of the people I've heard talk about it, but um, James Merrill, who was a poet uh, in the 1930, uh, 30, you know, maybe 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, he did over 20 years, he uh, he um, had this seances with the Ouija board with his partner and they transcribed it and they uh, turned it into this. And there's this book called the changing light at Sandover, uh, which is like this 20 years of Ouija board. Um, uh, Really? I mean, I guess that's what it takes 20 years. (laughs) Wow. He, yeah. I mean, Sylvia Plath was doing that too. I think there were a couple poets that were doing that for sure. I could see poetry a little bit would be a little easier. Do like a whole novel. Strangely enough, James Merrill was friends uh, and part of the same circle as Maya Darren. Not strangely, I mean. Oh. In your notes here, you had a uh, imagery and aspects of it are ubiquitous in our pop culture references, but also in terms of the highly strange. I mean, it just shows some of these films, like a film like that becomes like modern day mythology. So it it kind of serves as a jumping off point and a, a repository for all this kind of esoteric information. Hey, what, what, what is it that we call it when people are in a place and things are strange? Uh, the Oz effect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just part of the vernacular and everything. Right. I mean, you might say we're not in Kansas anymore or, you know, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I mean, the, yeah, these things become so ingrained because they're so ubiquitous. Everybody's seen it, and it's a cultural touchstone, and a reference point that everybody's going to get. So you kind of, I think, 
uh, with 20th, 20th century pop culture, that's one of those like big nexus points of, of symbolism that can always be drawn from and referred to. Yeah, we should talk about the comedy stuff. Because, I mean, you know, when people think of uh, the occult, they don't think of comedy usually. It's uh, changing. I think the value in, um, in the occult using humor, and I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I think it's actually necessary if you're going to do anything occult-wise uh, that you have a sense of humor, you know, at the very least. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of alluded to it before, but it's something for me, uh, having grown up watching a lot of classic comedy, the stuff really, you know, the really old stuff from silent movies on, um, it was always interesting to me to kind of notice these little themes where, uh, like reincarnation for one would be used as a gag in, in, in some of these. And I'm like, why was reincarnation such a prominent, uh, like prominent enough that an audience will just accept it as a plot point or, <laughs> um, it, you know, it just kind of seemed, seemed interesting. And I mean, some of these guys really were, you know, they, they knew about the stuff. So, um, I, I it, to me, it's an indicator of, um, of the prevalence of some of these ideas. So one of the ones I looked at with, um, with regard to reincarnation is actually a later three stooges one with Joe Besser in the, in the third stooge spot at everybody's least favorite stooge, Joe Besser. Um, <laughs> Um, where, uh, their sister, the Stooges are all brothers in this one and their sister comes back as a horse, you know? Uh, so uh, that, that was like specifically the horse is one that pops up with the reincarnation themes. There's a Laurel and Hardy one where the joke at the end is, uh, uh Oliver Hardy dies and he's reincarnated as a horse. <laughs> and you know it's him because he's wearing the derby and has the mustache. That's <laughs> right. And he says, this is another fine mess, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, the reincarnation themes are are, are uh, kind of funny to me in those. And um, uh, numerology is something that was kind of more widely accepted. Uh, I know Stan Laurel himself uh, changed his name to be more uh a more auspicious number from stanley arthur jefferson to stan laurel because mm -hmm. the number would would work better for success and apparently did you know <laughs> he ended up teaming up with oliver hardy and we still know who he is now um and uh yeah some of the ideas about the afterlife that are explored beyond reincarnation and some of those old comedy short movies is uh pretty interesting too well the, you mentioned also on here the marks brother he's a deputy seraph oh right the yeah um the proposed tv series that the marks brothers were supposed to be in um and at this point they're very old and um yeah so as De deputy seraph with as a play on Dep deputy sheriff with uh groucho in charge of a couple angels that have to go to earth and like uh, complete some mission every episode. And, um, the angels of course are, are, are Chico and, uh, Harpo Marx. 
<laughs> and uh, I think I think Chico died like pretty quickly after they started making the show. And I think they were mostly making the show because Chico was broke. But (laughs) he was quite the gambler and he had a lot of gambling bets that he had to settle. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's just kind of a really weird way to end the Marx brothers career is have, have this like TV show idea where they're just in the afterlife or on another plane. I mean, essentially they're angels. (laughs) They're supposed to be like, uh, um, uh, well, I guess like seraphim, because the, the that's where the seraph comes in for the the deputy seraph. So, um, pretty wild. You can find little clips of that on YouTube, and it, it's it's really weird to see. There's a part where like Harpo takes his halo and takes a bite out of it, and <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just funny, weird stuff that I'm I've been digging into and trying to find little examples of of. Uh, of how the the occult and uh, you know afterlife ideas and magical ideas have been exploited, but in the in the old comedies. And, and, and you mentioned too, like with a more, uh, I guess, closer to modern day. But Dale Close is another one. Yeah, I don't know if this mentioned. is somebody that uh, when Steve, you guys Steve Berg talked about this. Yeah, I talked so, to Steve yeah. Berg about. I mean, he probably covered most of this, and he you know would would know this. He knows this probably more intimately because he's actually part of that scene. But um, Del Close, who is uh, he's this guy who basically invented long form improv. And he's kind of the uh, uh, like the the guru, uh, so to speak, for most of the famous comedians there, like Amy Poehler and, you know, um, all, all the uh, upright citizens brigade and uh come from this sort of, you know, school of Del Close. Now, Del Close was, uh, you know, um, a huge occultist. And a lot of his work was essentially about, you know, trying to, uh, you know, invoke possession or, you know, uh, get rid of the self. And people sort of, you know, very much worshipped him in this kind of cult cultish fashion. But, you know, he would do things like have exercises where students would, you know, invoke a God that they create for their group vision, and then they would worship it. Um, uh, a lot of his stuff was, you know, very much invocation uh, and remain, you know, uh, sort of legendary uh, amongst the uh, uh, improv community. Um, but, you know, they used to say things, you know, like uh, he would come up with these rules and these sort of, you know, uh, invocations that people would use. And they'd say things like, Thou hast taken control of my good sense. When thou art with me, I am debased and dishonored. Like all this stuff, which if you know anything about ceremonial magic, it's very, very similar type stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, um, he he is the sort of progenitor of long form improv, which is then influenced and sort of, you know, put itself out through most of today's uh, uh, most successful comedians. Interestingly enough, you know, he also said that he was... Uh, you know, it was, uh, I think it was heroin he, that he was addicted to. Um, or, yeah, uh, I think. Anyway, early on in his career, and he said that uh, a coven of, of witches in Toronto, because he's Canadian, um, uh, uh, cured his heroin addiction. And that, you know, uh, so it was he was somebody that was very much steeped in, you know, the, the, in the occult. And uh, it was the basis for, um, yeah, his comedy. 
Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, integral role of humor in a lot of uh, Sufi traditions, so it's not too far from spiritual or uh, metaphysical matters at all. Um, it can it can really serve to, you know, crack open your head and laughing too. laughing too. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that can be part of or there is like a, a tantric tradition where that can be used to access Kundalini. Um, I know Sarai has talked about this before, like when he's he's essentially made an analogy between the laughing churches in um, charismatic Christianity, uh, you know, which I'm sure y'all are familiar with this idea of like you catch the holy laughter and you pass it on to somebody else. You can find these videos of it. Um, when it's not like performative, uh, you know, it could be, you know, Kundalini that's happening. It could be this, you know, an, an actual sort of mystical, whoops, a mystical uh, uh, energy phenomenon that's happening. Uh, and it can be triggered by laughing. We could all use some more of that. Oh, yeah. Yep. I just take some funny comedy, man. Funny comedy. <laughs> well, I was going to say that earlier, too, when we were talking about David Lynch, is that there's like a quirky humor to his movies, too, especially oh, in. It's one of the best Twin parts. Peaks, it's yeah. up front about it. And I think that's that's one of the ingredients in that mix that, that makes it seem more relatable and, and legitimate and makes you, you engage with it more is that every once in a while there's something that you, <laughs> you got to laugh at and then yeah. you got to reference it later oh you absolutely know? those are the best yeah. some of the best parts they the ones that stick right. with me he did this great he did a comedy series right after twin peaks that never made it anywhere at one season called on the air fantastic stuff it was about like a old style radio uh like a radio station back in like the 20s or 30s really funny mm-hmm but there is something about that that kind of short circuits the the logic pathways in your mind and it, it kind it of you know, circumvents all of that stuff and goes straight into yeah uh, yeah and there's a fine line i think between something being sort of funny and unsettling or scary too which he really rides very well i mean you know yeah clowns baby. the uncanny factor right. of yeah um can go either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good segue to talk about uh, something we haven't talked about yet, and that's horror. Very influential genre. We definitely got to talk about this for our friend David Metcalf, who's been um, taking a huge dive into understanding horror as essentially our interaction with the other. Um, but it also has a lot of uh, elements of like modernizing folklore that's pretty much ancient. Um, and the fan cultures around it are devotional. Um, so what do, you, what do you guys think about horror movies as it relates to the, the esoteric and, and these things we're talking about? Well, you know. I, I think what, and I'm not sure what David's been you know researching, but I can imagine it seems like from what you said that he's looking at it from, you know, like, why are we interested in this? Like, where, where did the horror movie come from? That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's sort of an extension and, you know, why we are interested in the sensational uh, could be a whole other uh it could be a whole other show or I guess, you know, uh, maybe even something that'd be too difficult to talk about in a show, but 
it's the same, you know, uh, same reason why people like to know about murders that were happening in Victorian London, you know, I, at least for me, I feel that way, um, that there is something it's a, there is a perverted or we shouldn't use the pervert word perverted, but there voyeurism, is a, sort of. yeah, it's voyeurism, but there's like uh, a taboo. I guess that's the, that's one word. You know, I think there's something about uh, taboo voyeurism that really influences people's, you know, love of the of horror. Uh, I think that it's, you know, there's catharsis in there, particularly if you're inundated with violence, there's something cathartic about it. Like I know, at least for me as a kid, I was absolutely terrified of anything any horror film like when i was a, a little kid i wouldn't couldn't watch it like even you know old lon cheney wolfman scared me um <laughs> right uh but it wasn't just that i was afraid of it i was afraid of the idea of it and there was something about the other that yeah. really scared me and seeing it like in in the flesh depicted in in, in you know in film um and then when I was like, I don't know, probably eight or nine, I started getting interested in horror films and I started like reading Fangoria magazine, which wow. showed you, you how it really was made. It. I got, yeah, no, I was one of those kids for sure. Um, and I started doing like special effects and thing, you know, homemade special effects and stuff. And how'd you make your blood? Uh, caro syrup, cornstarch, a little bit of water, food coloring. That was the cheapest. The cornstarch doesn't make it kind of chunky. Cornstarch gives it that little bit of of uh, uh, like uh, uh, not translucent, but opaqueness that blood has. Oh, okay. So it's not as like it, it's not as translucent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I had it all down. Um, and for me, at least that was uh, it got rid of my my anxiety and my fear. And it, I had a lot of anxiety and fear as a kid. I mean, I still yeah. have anxiety, but it's it was something that was a big problem when I was a kid. And it, it worked for me as like a, a tool with which to work through a lot of my anxieties. Yeah. And I think I was, he's been talking about that a lot and like processing a lot of people, you know, like it for uh, they seem to be processing trauma with the aid of the stuff. And um, yeah, just, you know, the, the proximity to death themes of death, either, you know, monsters that are undead or just even slasher flicks. And, you know, stuff like that really uh, connects it to death. And that's the, the, the ultimate fear of most people. Yeah. And in many ways, it's this kind of like memento mori, you know, uh, uh, this as, you know, memento mori or in Arcadia ego, there's this sort of old artistic motifs that were about reminding you that, you know, we all die uh, or at least, you know, engaging with that fascination um uh, of death and i definitely think that yeah horror movies are like this sort of modern extension of that um and you know i think there's also something that is more along the lines of sort of pornographic voyeurism i think there's some people that are titillated by violence yeah straight up are you know um and maybe it's good that they have that as sort of a a way to work it out i'm i'm not you know i'm not so AP, what are your thoughts on the the horror genre as it relates to some of the stuff we're talking about? Um, I'm particularly fascinated, especially in the uh, vein of the pop culture archetypes that I was talking about with the old universal horror movies and the monsters there. And I know Metcalf has talked about that a bit too. Um, like interesting that the guy that was writing the screenplays for Frankenstein and Dracula was 
you know, hanging out with gurus and going back and forth to India. <laughs> yeah, right. It is. But there was kind of a lot of that stuff. I mean, yeah. like main, mainly Palmer Hall was huh. like friends with Bela Lugosi. Oh, yeah. yeah. Actually hypnotized him for like a scene in a movie. Yeah. And that became like this big thing in a rumor mill where um, people thought he was hypnotized while he was playing Dracula. Yeah. But it was, it was actually a different movie, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, Lugosi's a, a super interesting character and, and pretty much everybody with those movies were, but the Dracula thing to me, that, that's, um, I, I've been on a Dracula kick lately and it was actually kind of a synchronicity with some of the posts that McCaff was, was posting. Cause um I was sending stuff to Stephanie quick and she was at the same time sending me Metcalf stuff from Facebook. And it was like kind of the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. Dracula, you know? So, um, uh, I came across a really interesting story from a very wacky book called, um, the man who exercised the Bermuda triangle. Um, I was reading it for as research for an article I was working on for uh, paranormality magazine that'll be out next month um but reverend omond who is best known for exercising loch ness uh one of his early exorcisms was at a place called kettleness in yorkshire um which is a part of the dracula story um that that's where dracula comes to shore in the book okay um so when he's brought over from transylvania the ship sinks but dracula climbs to shore in the form of a a black dog yeah so there was an actual black dog that was being seen there and omand had exercised it but it occurred to him later that bram stoker was basing all his locations on places that he'd been before yeah and he suggested that maybe bram stoker had a form of second sight and could sense this black dog at Kettleness and base that scene in Dracula on something he actually experienced. And further, that whatever entity that was implanted itself in Stoker's mind specifically so he would write him as a fictional character and amplify his existence through um, th- through the fictional character that was going to be immortal and live forever. Yes. Which I mean, that's all very convoluted, but it makes perfect sense to me. I love it. <laughs> like, I this totally is love awesome. it. It's like that's the real Dracula, baby. Yeah. It's just a amorphous black dog in Yorkshire. You know, who knows? Right. I love it. Or that is Dracula, and he's you know secretly behind the scenes because of course he can cloud our minds and make us forget doing all these things. Uh, well, right. Almost, yeah, I mean, uh, the form is really not even that important, but it's right. almost like he inspired. He just he has slipped into Stoker's brain as, in the form of inspiration and just like hung out there until Stoker sat down and wrote Dracula. <laughs> that picture that you uh, that you posted, um, I was scrolling through to find it of uh, the guy with the sword. Is that at Loch Ness? That yeah, that's a picture. That was um, Doc Shields. Is that him? That's a different guy. Oh, okay, yeah. All right. All right. He was he was the guy that conjured Nessie. Oh, uh, so you needed somebody else to exercise Nessie. But that's a pretty epic picture. I I gotta tell you. <laughs> Doc Shields called her called her up, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty epic picture. <laughs> I love that picture. That's from a YouTube video. If you um 
if you if you look on YouTube for Doc Doc Shields, it's like Shields but with no D. Um, it'll pop up. It's like a fourteen times TV, I think, like a little segment they did with him. So wow. he's got a pair of Skyclad witches so that he can yes. summon yes. Caesar. Skyclad. I shared that because I recently came into possession of a sword, and now I know like what I need to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Of course. There you go. Exercise club and reservoir. Touch. No, no. Conjure a sea serpent. That's what oh, I need conjure to, sea serpent. I Sorry. Yeah. Now, so I need bad. to conjure a sea serpent. Are there any lakes next to you that you can go to to do that? Well, I mean, you can't, Chris you was can't saying a club to... and reservoir. I yeah. could do okay. that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there are probably cooler bodies of water in Mac. Lake Champlain already has one, so you got to find a place that doesn't have a sea a, a lake monster. There is Webster Lake in Massachusetts. On yeah. the Massachusetts Connecticut border. That place is pretty weird. There's been go UFOs to Hockamock Swamp out of the water there. So Well, you should write a fictional story about it and see if uh, some kind of form comes through. Um Maybe I wanted I will. to Yeah. I recently went to uh we've got this little like horror theater slash tattoo shop around here called lone wolf and i don't know how they managed it i guess like it was just a serious uh commercial retail slump a long time ago or this tattoo shop is just so banging that it um subsidizes it but it's like really nice and, and big and it's like a i mean it just struck me how much like a temple it is to these these characters and yeah. i think the horror folks are just some of the most devotional fan groups. I mean, they, and maybe, I don't know, maybe the anime people got them beat now, but these were, they were like the originals. I feel like, uh, as far as things derived from movies and it was just like a temple in there, you know, everywhere they had, mm-hmm. uh, all the posters, um, you know, tons of autographs and, and sculptures of every monster and horror character. And I was just like, wow, this is really like a, a, a a mythology, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, all of the how many wax museums there are too. Like you know, um, there's the whole funhouse element where it's uh, it's an immersive experience. You know, <laughs> it's uh, pretty great. Pretty great. It's a big stuff. part of people's lifestyles. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely one of them. I got plenty of horror stuff around here. You know, <laughs> so. Oh, do you guys have any uh, particular favorites in the horror genre? Oh, it, for me, it was always it was always Dracula. I was always uh, I, I was fascinated. I mean, you know, beyond the sort of fear or after the fear came the fascination. So, uh, yeah, at first it was Dracula. But then, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, I was a child of the 80s. So I very quickly s- switched over to Freddy Krueger. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I still find that first nightmare on Elm street, even though I don't think that, you know, Wes Craven is an occultist in any way, shape or form. He was able to get something that even though it's a little corny now, I, it, there's, there's, it has a little bit of that kind of edge and quality that I think makes it like truly scary. Same way that like, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like in some ways truly scary. Yeah. <laughs> kind of because it sucked. It, it, part of it's sucky, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, well Texas Chainsaw Massacre has that feeling of like, you know, you're watching a snuff film. So right. You're watching a snuff it. film. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's strategically without the blood, though. 
They don't show you the blood part. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. No, I was obsessed with uh, Bella Lugosi and uh, um, uh, you know, general like the 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 Universal monsters and all sorts of old monsters, but uh, in particular Dracula and Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Well, yeah, me too. Um, now, now that we mention it, though, the Bride of Frankenstein has some real occult elements going it, on in it. Because you have uh, Dr. Septimus Pretorius as a character there, mm-hmm. uh, played by Ernest Thesiger, and he's basically doing like Paracelsian uh, homunculi yeah. <laughs> manifestation. <laughs> like he's got these little tiny people in jars that he created in the lab. Yeah. yeah. Just like, yeah, use the Paracelsus homunculus formula there, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. It's basically what that is, you yeah, know. It totally is. The favorites, yeah. I mean, Bride of Frankenstein is definitely up there. Bride That's of Frankenstein, yeah. Out. Bride of Frankenstein. I, I prefer Bride of Frankenstein to the to Frankenstein. Uh, honestly, um, I, I oh, find yeah, something. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you get a lot of pathos for the monster with like making friends with the blind man mm-hmm. and then being like ripped away from the blind man. And his house is burned down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jerk villagers. Yeah. Um, those universal movies are really great. The both Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man are kind of the ones that I'm tied on for for those. Um, I mean, as far as other horror movies go, I'm a big fan of uh, like 1950s, the more cheesy kind of sci-fi horror, like The Blob. The Blob is definitely up there. Um, them with the giant ants. Yeah, I, I love that. Great. Um, I love the corny stuff that like uh, Roger Corman or William Castle would do. So pretty much any of that stuff. Um, and then I don't know. I really enjoyed like The Shining, Poltergeist. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I like the goofier comedy stuff like Evil Dead or Evil Dead Two rather. And yeah, Bubba oh, Hotep. Yeah, Bubba Hotep's one of my all-time favorites. Bubba Hotep's great. Joe Lansdale. And the early Peter Jackson movies. The Frighteners is, uh, uh, I, I still, I watched that, which is one of the later Peter Jackson, but it's the last one that he made that is like a, a, a ghost good. film. I kind of dug, dug it. Yeah, I, I, it's been a while. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, yeah. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, stuff that like, you know, maybe I'm not as big a fan of, I mean, it's tough. Like some of the, you know, the, like um, the, the misery rape revenge slasher stuff, like uh, the, like Craven got started with late seventies. There's something that is important about it, but I, I never could bring myself. I'm not a big fan of watching it like last house on the left, that kind of stuff. Though I think, you know, a lot of those early slasher films are, you know, interesting. Um, the ones like Savini was, you know, involved with early on. Um, yeah, like those, the, the, those are cool. Uh, the, you know, the 80s sort of the superheroization of uh, movie monsters, or at least the 80s movie monsters uh, was kind of an interesting thing. But I always got scared more or was more affected by horror movies that were supernatural 
Not that there are mm-hmm. many yeah. that are really good, but I really like, like if you can get, find a good supernatural horror yeah. film. Oh, I'm so happy about that. Cause you can't just so run the out, run that stuff. Good. The original, the haunting. Oh, the, the original, the haunting. Yeah. 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 What do you guys think about folk horror and like some of the, the UK stuff and this, you know, these movies that center around there being these, these, uh, dormant or hidden pagan traditions that continue on and then your protagonist gets caught up in the, in in that yeah Which i, I like i mean yeah. you know i was a wicker man fan oh yeah the, way back uh the original one um that's experiencing a revival that's folk horror stuff now it really is yeah, yeah. there was a, a great one recently oh, i'm totally forgetting the name of it um it's got the woman nomi rapacy from the who played the original uh in the original um girl uh with a dragon tattoo god what was the name of it she's like a it's about a witch um name's completely escaping me i'll i'll look it up while we're talking about stuff um but yeah in terms of like recent folk horror i wasn't as huge a fan of uh midsummer um one that i did like recently was called the ritual which i don't know if anybody ever saw but it's a it's like swedish it's um uh essentially they you know uh they encounter a jotun but it's it's uh it's it's pretty it's interesting it's like three guys you know four four guys a group of guys i think it's four or five <laughs> um uh in the woods for you know camping trip yeah weird stuff that they find yeah it's it's good pretty good I'm trying to think of any other i don't know ap you got any well, you're talking about British movies, um, Night of the Demon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw that not too long ago. Um, yeah, that that movie one. is so yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. And that's got some like legit occult stuff going on in it. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, it ties into that. Um, of course, there's like The Devil Rides Out and Dennis Wheatley. Yeah. was like a, a big through line with the British horror stuff. Yeah. Directly connected to the occult. And, um, because he knew both Montague Summers and Aleister Crowley, I think Wheatley yeah. did. Um, and he, he's a very problematic writer in a lot of ways yeah. too. But he did a lot to introduce um, a lot of these occult concepts in the movies in the '60s in a way that hadn't really been done before, um, based on his stories and his own personal experiences with the occult. Uh, I'll mention for horror movies, one of my favorites. I mean, you know some of the stuff like the exorcist i think is a great movie you know great film in and of itself you know but uh well really both films the original 1920s one knows for but i'm thinking of the, the werner herzog version which i think is just as much a classic as the original original herzog nosferatu is great and the original is great yeah both really good to mention yeah what about shadow of the vampire love that yes he actually did another really cool uh it's one of the only experimental horror films that exists out there it's called begotten uh and it's Uh, yeah yeah. that one's really disturbing super disturbing (laughs) which by the way uh robert eggers who did the witch and lighthouse and northman He's now, he's been talking about for a while doing Nosferatu. And I think Willem Dafoe. He's been talking to Willem Dafoe. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. The name of that film I was talking about is you won't be alone is what it's called. Uh, and it's, it's really good. I check it out. It's from 2022. Um, yeah, God, there's so many, I mean, like, yeah, exorcist, uh, I'm trying to think there's some other great ones. The thing, the uh, carpenters, the thing is a great mm-hmm. horror film. Uh, as I love the original, uh, you know, Halloween, I think is s- superb. Um, man, uh, haunting a Hill house. The original one is a great one. Those are the only movies too, that I feel like are, are seasonal. You know, there's really nothing like, when when the fall's coming and October's coming and you throw on Halloween on a windy night, you know. Hey man, honorable honorable mention to Halloween three. I don't think it gets enough credit. Halloween three's good. Season of the Witch, yeah, very good. <laughs> Those masks are great. Well, um, the thing about that was it was, it was it was a story based on uh, Nigel Neal wrote wrote the story for that, and he was the guy behind like Cater Mass. The old yeah, uh, yeah Cater Mass in the Pit, yeah, yeah, right. which always touched on some you know UFO adjacent or Hollow Earth adjacent, yeah, magic uh-huh. weird themes, you know. Um, but I mean, the producers chopped up his story and added a bunch of different weird stuff, so it turned into this beautiful mess that became Season of the Witch. You ever seen a? Uh, you ever seen Life Force? That's a, yes. that's a that's yes. a mess of a damn movie that's a but, huge you know, that, mess that was based on a colin wilson uh story or a novel yeah it was yeah. you're right yeah. yeah i think it was called space vampires space vampires yeah. yep <laughs> yeah tobe hooper did that one and it's just it's just like it's 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 like three movies in one it's just like <laughs> what does this movie want to be <laughs> one of those movies is just a nude vampire walking around new york though so that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well did we want to talk about the synchromysticism stuff or we want to save that for another discussion because we're, we're um, going off for, a, for yeah, almost two yeah, hours I, the, the time really flew by yeah we should do this again if you can get Metcalf we can maybe do something with uh, yeah with yeah, yeah well. we could get Metcalf cool get him back yeah. on at some point if you can get him I know he's very busy yeah well, guys, this has been awesome. I want to thank you all for doing this. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Um, the usual guys, uh, AP Strange, where can people find you? Um, I'm still in the uh, dystopian wasteland that is Twitter. Uh, you can find me on there. Poor guy. Um, APstrange.com is the blog. Uh, I've been writing for Paranormality Magazine. so Yeah, I've been seeing it. That's great. Yeah. If you subscribe to that or get issues lately, uh, you can find articles from me in there. So, uh, yeah. and that's that's where you can read me and find me. So, <laughs> and Mr. Ernst, uh, you can go to brightrectangle.com and that'll uh, you know give you links to uh, where you can see films that I've done or worked on. And uh, if you for some reason wanted to contact me, uh, and then there will be at some point soon with hopefully in the next few months, uh, finishing the uh, film uh, that I did with Soraya, where did the road go? And that'll be available somewhere through brightrectangle.com, which which I showed uh, a special version of that will never exist in the same uh, uh, way to the Strange Realities crew at this year's Strange Realities. It was a wonderful experience. We feel privileged. Yeah, I was privileged to be there. It was great to see it on the big screen. All right. 
All right, guys. Well, you know, we are Conspiranormal, and uh, you should know that if you're listening, but just in case you're hearing this somewhere else, we are Conspiranormal, and you can find us, Conspiranormal.com, Conspiranormal YouTube channel, and here, and we also have a Patreon, which uh, Sergio can tell you about if you would like to support us. You can find that at Patreon.com slash Conspiranormal. All right, guys, we got a string of good shows coming your way, and I want to thank uh, Christopher Ernst and AP Strange for joining us tonight. And we will talk to you soon on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis, The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.